and welcome to Off the Beaten Track. This is the follow-up to the first part of our walk of Bristol. Uh, first of all, though, Phil. Uh, hello, by the way. Hello. Willkommen. Willkommen. I want to pick you up on your erroneous information concerning caramel kegs. Uh-oh. I just want to uh, make sure that we don't commit any libel by stating that, counter to your claims, the caramel keg was never manufactured in the Old Vic Theatre in j- Bristol. You're joking. Now we've cleared that up, I do have in my pocket here... Uh, one of the menus from the Tin of Roses that I saved from Christmas. Talking about caramel kegs, it's now called the Golden Barrel. It's not called the caramel keg anymore. I think they've had a rebrand. What are they thinking? They've changed the wrapper. As well. Yeah. It's now just your standard wrapped sweet. The old caramel keg. It was a foil ensemble. It was figure hugging. It showed off the coopering of the barrel nicely, the individual slats of the barrel. I should say that we're not sponsored by Roses, but we're going to have a conversation about them anyway. I'm going to read out some of the names. Ready? Almond Caramel Bite. Are these the new names? I think these are, they think they've had a yeah, rebrand. A lot of them have been rebranded. Okay. Brazilian Darkness. <laughs> Th- this next one, Toffee Escape, right? That's how a chocolate should be named. It's a concept as well as a sweet. Well, this is it, isn't it? I mean, everything's got to have a like a life-enhancing property now. Yeah. Caramel is the next one. Okay. Happy, happy, happy with, with that. Very yeah. happy with that. Uh, it does exactly what it says on the, I was gonna say, what, on the tin. The plastic tin, as it is now. Country fudge. Again, happy. You know what, you know what you're getting. Is there a difference between urban and rural fudge? Cream. Cream content. <laughs> Uh, you've got a, a, a track record when it comes to bullshitting about sweets. <laughs> um, Hazel in Caramel is the next one. That sounds like a ITV3 detective series <laughs> with Felicity Kendall and Pam Ferris. <laughs> the last one I have here, Hazel Whirl. Newsreader. <laughs> Six o'clock news on the BBC. Yep. That's the list a la carte roses for you there, off the menu. Where is the toffee penny? Well, I think you're conflating roses with Quality Street there. I think the Toffee Penny is part of the Quality Street family. The caramel, or I should say, the Golden Barrel knee caramel keg, not made in the Old Vic Theatre Bristol. Uh, The Old Vic in London is run by... uh, Uh, Kevin Spacey, or was... I think he was artistic director. That is just off the top of my head what his job might have been. But it sounds right, doesn't it? And if it sounds right, it usually is. Is that so your... So if I say, I'm a millionaire, that sounds right, doesn't it? No, it doesn't sound right. Oh. Not, not the way you're dressed. <laughs> uh, I... we're, just, we're, we're, we're only just in our pants. We like, it's better <laughs> to do podcasts in your boxer shorts alone. We're actually sitting uh, in the middle of Bristol. In a nondescript flat in Bristol. Yeah, my flat's in Bristol. Yeah. I don't own it. I'm no. not, uh, if I Again, if I say I own my own house, that's completely unbelievable. That's also why I felt comfortable in saying it was a nondescript flat. If you own this flat, I couldn't be slightly derogatory about it. I see. You have to rent this place, given the current market. Talking of living in Bristol, John Cabot, who was mentioned on our walk, big bronze statue of him outside the Arnolfini. Yes. He lived in Bristol for a number of years. Do you know how long he lived here? I don't know how long. I don't know, but it was in the 1490s. He lived just around the corner from where we are, near the entrance to St. Nicholas Market on the same road. Do you think he bought or do you think he rented? I'd say bought. I don't know. Maybe he rented. Henry VII bought him a house. Yes. Henry VII is the landlord living upstairs. Unlikely. That's quite an intimidating landlord to have upstairs, isn't it? The (laughs) The King of England. Yeah. 
Surely he must have been busy consolidating his power base elsewhere in the country rather than yeah. living upstairs on hand to fix a tap or something. It's unlikely that the King of England would occupy the upstairs portion of a one-up, one-down in Bristol, isn't it? We don't know, do we? We don't know. We, we just, just don't, don't know. This is the questions in history that need to be answered. Yeah. Was Henry VII good at plumbing? Is the... <laughs> I think he'd do that classic middle-class landlord thing of turning up in a paint-stained old rugby top and pretending that they can do <laughs> DIY competently. Oh, yes, I'll turn up with a three-step ladder and fix the leak you're having in the roof. And then 40 minutes later, the entire flat's six inches underwater. Make sure somebody's at home when I come. I'll be around <laughs> 8 o'clock, 12 hours later, still going, swearing, hands are red raw. Yeah, not paying for a plumber. Henry VII's mother was 13. When... She had him. Mm-hmm. That's probably fairly standard, is it, for the uh, medieval period, I should think. I've also read that he was very frugal. He amassed a huge fortune, but they didn't say how, how he amassed that fortune. I was thinking maybe swans off the menu, oat cakes. Oat cakes for dinner. <laughs> Thrifty. Thrifty, yeah. yeah. John Cabot was living in Bristol in the late 15th century. Contemporaries of Cabot. So who else could have been living with him? Uh, possible flatmates. Possible flatmates <laughs> of John Cabot's. Christopher Columbus. His nemesis in many ways. Again, we don't know. Were they friends? They're both Italian. So they have a, a common tongue, shared interests. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Long walks on the beach in North America. A little fact for you about Christopher Columbus. He was strawberry blonde. He also possibly had writer's syndrome as well. What's that? It causes inflammation of the joints and I think the organs as well. Mm. Uh, but it also makes your eyes bleed. Oh, my God. Really? Blimey. He suffered from bleeding eyes, apparently. Yeah. Who else? Machiavelli. Machiavelli's a contemporary of contemporary around of in the late 15th century. My notes here say that he's the creator of modern political science. Yeah, it's better to be hated than loved if you can't be both. Is that a quote? That's a quote, yeah, from The Prince. The Prince, yes. A landmark work in the history of political power, The Prince. Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, yes. Was another possible housemate. I wonder what kind of housemates Leonardo da Vinci would have been. Yeah, well, that's a hell of a house to share, isn't it? Who have we got? Henry VII, Machiavelli, Leonardo da Vinci. And Christopher Columbus. And Christopher Columbus. Columbus is never at home. No. He's gone. <laughs> he spends days away from the house. I imagine da Vinci's the opposite. He's the housemate that never goes out. Always in his room. Where's Leonardo? Don't worry, he's in. He's in. <laughs> Door closed. He's doodling again. This has got all the hallmarks of a, a classic sitcom, hasn't it? Columbus... He swans in and out. You can imagine as he walks in, the crowd applause. Yeah, exactly. He's the cool guy. guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and Leonardo's the nerd. Henry Seventh. No one really likes Henry Seventh. No. He's from a moneyed family. Machiavelli, he's the one making all the clever jokes. Yeah, the sarcastic kind of one. This is actually a Friends episode, I was going to say, I think this is how Friends have got the idea for their characters. Yeah. I love the <laughs> idea of these people living together. <laughs> share. We'll see if we can get that sitcom commissioned. Mm. I think there's six episodes in that. Renaissance Roomies. Renaissance Roomies, yeah. Uh, we'll see you on BBC Two at half past ten on a Friday. We'll see you on Quest at half past three in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's a list of contemporaries of Cavett. How many is that then? Five in total. Hell of a five-a-side football team. It would be. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, that actually segues nicely into our next conversation topic, which is people that were goalkeepers and then went on to do something else. Now celebrated figures who were once goalkeepers. I can name two straight off. He's got two. Yeah, go on. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, yes. He played football as a goalkeeper for Portsmouth Association Football Club, which was an amateur side. He played under the pseudonym A.C. Smith. Oh, okay. So he's never actually appeared on a team sheet as... C. 
uh, a, a, <laughs> a Conan Doyle. Uh, who's, who's the other one that you were thinking of? John Paul II. Yes, yeah, the Pope. It says here, school football games were often organised between teams of Jews and Catholics, and due to the anti-Jewish feelings of the time, there was a potential for events to sometimes turn nasty, inverted commas. Our dear Pope cheerfully offered himself as a substitute goalkeeper on the Jewish side if they were short of players. Next on my list is Albert Camus. Oh, really? The philosopher. He played for a school in Algiers, where he was born, and he played for Racing Universitaire Algerios. I'd imagine a philosopher would be rubbish in goal. If everyone at a football game turns their back and the ball goes in the back of the net, has it scored? Has it scored? Has it scored? Poor old uh, Albert Camus finished his career at the age of 18 because he contracted TB. And the last one I have here, Pavarotti the Italian tenor. Anyone who's familiar with Pavarotti's physique in later life can appreciate the logic of sticking him in goal. He played in goal for his local club in his hometown of Medina, but was eventually convinced to look for a different career by his mother. Mum says no, hang up your gloves. And stop eating. Just stop <laughs> eating. <laughs> there we are. That's um, celebrated figures who uh, once played in goal. During our walk, we came across the statue of William III in Queen's Square. We mentioned his tiff with James II, whose nickname was uh, James the Beshitten. Yes. And that's inspired us to look up monarchs with interesting epithets. A few that are well known. The first one, William I. William the Conqueror. Mm-hmm. The artist formerly known as William the Bastard. Indeed. Ethelred the Unready, King of England. 978 to 1013. And then 1014 to 1016, double header. Unready meant without counsel or ill-advised. Oh, yeah, not that he's... Permanently unready. Turning up at breakfast in his dressing gown and slippers. <laughs> his toast toasties. I've got some more, which people wouldn't have heard of, I wouldn't have thought. Mm. Half Dan the Bad Entertainer. <laughs> Son of Einstein the Fart. Kings of Norway in the 8th century. Jarls. Regional elites. Regional elites. Einstein the Fart. Bad entertainment and a farter. <laughs> yeah. That's not Christmas, hmm. <laughs> Half Down the Bad Entertainer was also known as King Half Down the Mild. His nickname apparently comes from the fact that he paid his soldiers generously, but didn't provide them with very much food. Argy Thorlitzen, in his writings, Is Lenderbock, calls him Eistai Speed, usually untranslated from the original Norwegian word fart. He mentions him without comment in his King's List. Ari kept a dignified silence on that one. Yeah, which uh, Einstein was clearly unable to do. <laughs> Uh, I've got another one here. Manuel okay. the Sausage Maker. Oh, goodness. <laughs> President of Spain in the later 18th and early 19th centuries. From a region in central Spain famous for producing sausages. But it's also a crude reference to his affair with the Spanish queen, Maria Lucius. That has every possibility of being tabloid tittle-tattle. <laughs> Uh, the Sausage Maker, I think really to derive comedy from that would be basis in Purell. I mean, it's like finding the Slevel or the Big Nest amusing. <laughs> Grand Prince of Vladimir from 1177 to 1212, he had 14 children. Vladimir is a city 120 miles to the east of Moscow. Do you know that? No. I'd never 14, heard of it. 14 children, hence Big Nest. Yeah. And the last one I have here is Ivalo the Cabbage. Yeah. A rebel leader and Tsar of Bulgaria. In 1277, he spearheaded a peasant uprising. Some historians think that it was the first peasant uprising in Europe. Oh, okay. And so cabbage relates to his... Don't know. Cabbage? You don't know? Don't know. We don't know. It's lost in the mists of time. That's not true. We just haven't done the research. So I don't know why he's called <laughs> the cabbage. 
He could be a farmer. But yes. Cabbage grower, cabbage eater. Cabbage man. <laughs> During our walk, we were also talking about pigeons and seagulls. As we said on the walk, much maligned members of the bird family. The seagull is your favourite bird? Yes, it is, but it's not my favourite raptor. Right. Raptors are birds of prey. They're in a different group. So is I like... that one you've made yourself, or is it a... No, that's true. A th- this is not the parent hierarchy of animals. No, I spent a long time working on that, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> Darwin-esque. I've seen your room. It's full of lists, pictures. <laughs> animals that I picked up on my travels. Long lens shots of the culprits, the seagull. Long lens shots of birds. <laughs> it's a biological classification, a raptor. Yeah. The seagull is my favourite bird now, mm. but it used to be the budgerigar. When I was a kid, I really wanted a budgie. And so to convince the powers that be... Your parents? Yes. Yeah. That I could look after a budgie, I joined the Budgerigar Society. (laughs) To show your readiness. Indeed. And did you get that? Did you get a budgie? I did, yeah. Looked after it for about three days and handed it over back to the powers that be. Are you still a member of the Budgie Society? I'm not sure. That's a good point, actually. Is it a subscription service, in fact? <laughs> They've been taking £2 a month out of my bank account for 25 years, <laughs> and I have never noticed. <laughs> Check your bank balance. Yeah. £2 a month, I'm going to work out what that is. £2 times 12 times 25. 600 quid. Oh, that's a lot of budgies. £600 worth of drill. You could still be a member. I, I can't believe that I am. Is there a seagull society? I'm going to look it up. We're going to have a look. No, nothing. Nothing as far as I can see. There's only an RSPB entry. Birds by family gulls. There we are. And on that, I think, sad note. Well, for me, it's happy because I don't like seagulls. But for you, it's sad because you're a big fan. I'm off to start the Seagull Society. We'll end it there, I think. So thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye.